0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Against Erasure, a photographic memory of Palestine before the Nakba, with a foreword by Mohammed El kurd This unique, stunning collection of images of Palestine in the late 19th and early 20th centuries is a testament to the vibrancy of Palestinian society prior to to occupation. With accompanying text in both English and Arabic, this beautiful hardback volume tells the story of a land full of people deeply connected to their homes. By recording life in Palestine prior to Israel's founding, this powerful book helps us refuse Zionist attempts to deny Palestinian existence. Find Against Erasure at haymarketbooks.org, where readers in the U.S. and U.K. receive free shipping on orders over $25 and 20 pounds, respectively. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Much discussion of the massive economic inequality that characterizes American society in the 21st century stays in the realm of abstract, bloodless statistics. The growing share of wealth that the 1% is gobbling up. The huge number of working-class Americans declaring bankruptcy over medical debt or unable to pay swelling rents or crushed by student debt. The statistics are plenty depressing. When reporting does flesh out the lives behind these figures, it's often tales of a deindustrialized worker, a young man rocketed through the school-to-prison pipeline, or a working mom homeless with her child because she can't afford an apartment. This work, of course, is essential. What we don't often get much of is a sense of the texture of life for capitalism's winners, including a variety of little understood forms of labor that make those super high-end lifestyles possible. Sociologist Ashley Mears' book, Very Important People, gives us some of that texture through a fascinating, often disturbing, examination of the garish world of the global, ultra-rich party circuit. Mears is a former model and the author of a previous book, Pricing Beauty, The Making of a Fashion Model, which is about labor conditions for models. Through contacts that she made writing that first book, For this book, she joined the club promoters and models, girls in promoters parlance, who serve as something like human set pieces for the dream worlds for the super rich that are created at these VIP clubs. She chronicles the carefully choreographed displays of waste, such as bottle service and dance floor champagne wars, and unpacks the complicated and rigid social hierarchies that undergird them. Today's interview is guest hosted by Jacobin editor Micah Utrecht, who has a fascinating conversation with Mears about this excellent book, which provides an in-depth look at what exactly the wealthy are doing with their money. It's a book about the cascading effects that their bottomless appetites for extravagance have on industries and on the entire society beyond these clubs, the promoters who are desperate to please their wealthy clients, and the women whose stereotypically good looks are central to that pleasure. While growing millions of Americans struggle to survive stagnant wages and ever-rising costs of living, this parallel universe of the ultra-rich is characterized by a kind of luxury consumption arms race growing ever more wasteful and ever more self-indulgent. In fact, as labor's share of income declines and productive investment slows, This sort of conspicuous consumption has an ever greater role in keeping the wheels of global capitalism turning. More importantly, these habits of expending surplus value reveal something about the social world and moral economy of our ruling class, indices of their values, and the sort of lives they will fight to preserve. Very Important People chronicles one corner of that universe vividly and maddeningly. We've spent the past few months doing in-depth episodes on and around Palestine, and there's a lot more of that coming up soon. And given what's going on in the world, this world of super elite bottle service might seem obscene. And, well, it should, because it is. As we peer into these penthouse suites of the global political economic order, we should remember that this entire edifice of wealth rests upon a foundation not only of labor exploitation, but of brutal violence and dispossession. And it always has. Before we get started, if you're a regular listener to this podcast, then you know that it's overwhelmingly a listener-supported operation. Not only that, it's a voluntarily listener-supported operation By which I mean we don't paywall anything to push you into contributing because this podcast is a political education project, and we want every single person possible on earth to listen. That only works, though, because listeners who can afford to contribute do so. If that is you, if you're a DIG listener listening right now, and you appreciate what we're doing here, and you can afford as little as $5 or even $1 a month, please contribute now. Depending on how much you contribute and where you live, we will also send you a book or books in the mail or a tote bag or a coffee mug. All contributors get our excellent newsletter written by the brilliant Ben Maybe, delivered to your email inbox. Please contribute now. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. There is a link in the show notes. Click it. Okay. Here's Ashley Mears, a professor of sociology and women's gender and sexuality studies at Boston University. She's the author of Pricing Beauty, The Making of a Fashion Model, and Very Important People, Status and Beauty in the Global Party Circuit. She is interviewed by my guest host, Jacobin editor, Micah Utrecht.
1: Mears, welcome to The Dig.
2: Yeah, thank you, Micah. It's good to be here.
1: So can we just start with the most basic kind of definitional work? What is your project in this book, Very Important People? What is this world that you described and participated in? in it? And who are the kinds of players uh, that make up this world?
2: So Very Important People, it's a little bit of a sarcastic title because it's about a a space of nightclubs that are for VIP. So I went into VIP nightclubs in New York. That's where I had done my sociology PhD and had always been a little fascinated by what I saw in the meatpacking district. And so I undertook uh, about a year and a half ethnography of going into these spaces and then following What I discovered was really a circuit of VIP nightlife, and I followed it from New York to the Hamptons in the summer to Miami during the Electronic Music Festival to uh, the French Riviera also during the summers. And the larger project interrogates the construction of status and all of the invisible labor that goes into making the space look like a space for very important people. And the kind of main actors that pull it all together. Are the rich men, and it's almost always men who are buying bottles at you know hugely inflated prices in these clubs, um, and they're also you know taking out yachts and renting mansions and, uh, and kind of making a big display of their wealth, and part of what makes their status. In most visible is the presence of very beautiful women, but beauty defined in very narrow terms of what the fashion modeling industry prescribes beautiful, which is tall, thin, disproportionately, not exclusively white, uh, young women. And then the people that bring them together are the nightclubs, specifically these people who are called party promoters or image hosts, and they're hired by the club to find these kinds of women mobilize them to get them to come out night after night and then also to build relationships with the clientele and get get these you know make the party happen so um my point of entry really was the promoters i well I, I could tell you a little bit about the methodology if you of how i how i hold this off um so when i was at nyu studying sociology i was working at the time as a fashion model for my dissertation which was about the labor economics of the modeling industry and i did that work in new york but also in london and what i what i found in that project from going to the castings was that there's a a bunch of men who work for nightclubs that are also hanging out at castings and they make it their job to befriend models build relationships with models and then um bring those models out for a free night. And I'm putting free in, in quote marks here because you know, there's no such thing as a free gift, we you know. But basically I when I finished my dissertation and it became a book called Pricing Beauty, I got my job in Boston and, you know, it was working towards tenure here. But I kept getting the text messages from these promoters that had met me at the castings. And they kept inviting me to come back out, you know, like, hey, baby, come for the sushi dinner. And I was looking for a project and I wasn't sure what I would study for my next big ethnographic project. But it, at the time around then, it was 2010, 2011. And that was in the wake of the economic crisis and actually the recovery and you know occupy wall street so there was an extremely uneven recovery and it became very clear that the people who rebounded back most quickly from the great recession were the economic elites and i was reading these reports of like oligarchs going to nightclubs in london and outspending each other on you know thousands of dollars of cristal champagne and i kept getting these messages from the promoters who were like do you want to come to the hamptons this weekend And so I I just replied one day like, yes, I want to come to the party. I want to see what's going on. And and I really wanted to understand how – this level of ostentation and conspicuous consumption was still possible. And what were the what were the meanings and what were the, the values that were circulating among the economic elite who are notoriously really hard to study, especially for a qualitative researcher like myself? I mean, I'm an ethnographer, and that that means that I try to get as close as possible to the to the lives and the everyday reality of the people that I want to study economic elite, of course, they have like walls up that, you know, have privacy and uh, they have lawyers, right? So it's really hard to get into the elite. And so I found this sort of back door of getting in with the promoters who are servicing the elite and constructing this VIP global circuit for them. And what I did to get close to the promoters was I used what we might call my own bodily capital right like the resource that i that i had i mean i couldn't i couldn't spend my way into this circuit as a sociology professor obviously but at the time i was like 31 I could still kind of pass for a fashion model, which was my background before I got into academia. I, I modeled, and that's why I had this interest, you know, to do my dissertation on the labor economics of the modeling industry. So I put on my high heels and uh, my party clothes, and I went back out and became what promoters would refer to as a girl, which is a a a woman who goes out and adds value to the space by embodying that kind of beauty that everybody can recognize as high status. So I had the short window of opportunity, I I think to like get in and and do the project.
1: To me, everything you've just described is fascinating in its own right, just to understand what is going on in this social world that, I certainly have nothing to do with. Didn't even fully understand that it uh, existed uh, in, a, in, a, in a serious, tangible way. Uh, but also because beyond the specifics of this world, I was fascinated in your book in terms of what it says about increasing economic inequality in the United States and across the world and the kinds of social spaces that have been created seemingly as a result of that. Inequality, And that when wealth concentrates more and more at the top of our society and, and of the world, that has sort of trickle down effects in the rest of the society, right? People aren't just getting richer and hanging on to more of their riches. They have an incredible amount of resources, seemingly endless resources for some of the people who you talk about in the book, to create this kind of uh, habitus uh, to engage in ritualistic displays of their purchasing power as a way that can, you know, project their wealth. And that also communicates certain kinds of values to, uh, you know, the people who are watching these rituals. And it really, truly celebrates these kind of, this, this orgy of, of consumption. And so so it's fascinating to see that this is what at least some subsection of the global ultra wealthy are choosing to do with their wealth.
2: Yeah. No, thank you. I think that sums up like really well, the larger, the larger motivation that I had in the project and what I had hoped to convey because it's always a problem when you do an ethnography of a case, especially the cases that I'm drawn to, they look like frivolous things, right? Like fashion and beauty and consumption. I mean, these are very marginal topics in sociology, which has largely been interested in understanding production, yeah, and like industrial relations and well, more essentially, worlds of men. But these topics, I think, you know, they seem frivolous, but they have they have really serious implications. Specifically, you might not have understood that this world... Really existed, but in pop culture, it really plays an outsized role because the visibility on Instagram and in rap lyrics and you know just in pop culture of our like media saturated environment is is kind of dominated with these ideas of status being generated through conspicuous consumption. But it's not just about you know showing that you have some money. It, it's increasingly gets ratcheted up when you have huge pools of wealth that are. Buying not just art, but like extremely expensive contemporary artworks, right? And not just a yacht, but a super yacht. (laughs) Yeah, so you have this like kind of increasing uh, concentrations of wealth and then ever ballooning means of uh, displaying them. And I think that the VIP club world is just one of many examples of these areas of uh, kind of ostentation that constructs an aspirational world of luxury consumption you see this in fashion of course you know, like you can see it in so many so many uh, aspects of life in which you know everyday people are called upon to you know consume to show their identity to show their status and there's you know a kind of data Baseline field of possibility that just gets pulled upwards when you start seeing that you know why why would you go to a regular club when you know other people are going to the very exclusive club and why would you go to the very exclusive club when other people are going to the very exclusive super yacht that's in the French Riviera you know, so it uh, it kind of pulls the field of of dreams and the field of possibility ever farther uh, against this long tail of um, uh, of inequality.
1: You write in the closing chapter of the book that you analyzed in the book, quote, the VIP party circuit as a transnational stage for the display of luxury consumption in which status, connections, and economic value accrue to the new global elite. To understand status dynamics among the upper echelons of an unequal class structure, we must come to grips with the social significance of their consumption. Hardly a fringe phenomenon, the VIP circuit demonstrates a historically significant moment, a form of status acquisition, made possible by the conditions of 21st century capitalism, unquote.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's true. It's made possible by the conditions now, particularly the availability of being globally mobile and being able to broadcast one's position, you know, through things like social media. Uh, So the stage is much bigger than ever before. But it also has a historical lineage. When I was thinking through what it, what does it mean that somebody would go to a club, assemble 10 or 15 or 20 fashion models around them buy you know, as many bottles of high priced, uh, crystal champagne and not even drink it, you know, but like gift it or shake it and spray it in the ritualistic champagne showers that I saw in Saint Tropez, Um, you know, like what, what is this form of behavior? And, um, It it led me to think first through conspicuous consumption, which the economist Orson Veblen had written at the turn of the century when he was documenting the new industrialists of America who were finding ever creative and outlandish ways to display their status. And it's kind of seemingly ratcheting up of one-upmanship competition, right? Like, you get this, but I'll get that bigger, and up and up it goes, yeah. So that's the, the conspicuity and the sort of will to dominate meaning to show your status is bigger than somebody else's status through consumption. But that line of thinking that Veblen was was working on also had a a lineage. I mean, when we think about uh, consumption rituals that anthropologist uh, Franz Boas was documenting among Pacific Northwest uh, tribal societies and what became called the potlatch so the potlatch was documented as a, a form of ritual squandering in which tribes would gather together, or a tribal elder would gather people together and show off like how much he had by how much he could waste. Who gives the biggest feast? Who can you know destroy precious things like coppers or blankets? And they were solemn affairs; like they weren't the, the sort of exuberant th- events that I was finding. And they really did matter for solidifying ranks. So they had serious consequences, and they could they could leave people with a serious. Sense of shame if they were outdone. So the metaphor, you know doesn't stretch perfectly, but it does help us think about this quest for status through waste and you know consumption as a kind of waste as a means to assert one's position in a comp- in a competitive spirit. And so I took that notion of potlatch and I and I started to kind of see it in this VIP clubbing arena and it doesn't happen all the time right like not every night is a champagne shower with uh, with the whales and I, they're called whales the really big spenders the people that will spend you know upwards of 20 50 even 100k in a single night you know that term whales from finance and casinos is people that make really big splashes with money and so when when whales come through you know, everybody gets very excited and they, they make sure that they have the very best supplies of champagne and the very best supplies of beautiful women. And because the, the hope is that people will spend a lot of money and then the club can can capture can capture that. And they really were exuberant nights. I mean, the, the bottles come out with um, sparklers, you know, these little fireworks that burn in the club. It's very, very clear effort to be conspicuous, right? So you, it very much draws the eye so you can see who's spending what, the models are expected to wear uh, very tall, high heels. I should add very uncomfortable high heels as well <laughs> that are like four inches tall. Um, and this also means you know models are already like starting at uh, five nine or five ten. So it means that they're also towering in the club. You know that also draws the eye. So everything is meant to to kind of showcase who are these people who have the most the most money in the room because they're wasting it yeah? and they're signaling it. And yeah, that's a that's an effort to to transform economic power into symbolic. Pre- Prestige. I mean, and and we see this in in many other forms. Um, you know, not just consumption of material goods, like in the art market, um, but you could think of philanthropy as a as a similar kind of you know effort to uh, sometimes whitewash money or or just to convert uh, money into status. And so, yeah, it's it's new, but it's also quite old.
1: We'll get into some of the specifics of the world in a second, but I just have to say near the top here that your book is an academic sociology book you're describing the scene not with a sense of sort of like moral judgment one way or the other about it you're just providing an ethnographic description of of what this world looks like but for me as a as a reader who came to read the book with certain moral and political commitments I have to say that times in the book I was thinking indicative of a terminal decadent phase of a society here. I mean, just like this, this feels like really like, you know, popping bottles in the club, dropping 50, 100 K a night while the world is burning around us. Like I just, history is not going to look kindly (laughs) on the people who are spending their time in this historical moment, choosing to uh, engage in these kind of ritualistic uh, forms of, uh, Cons- conspicuous consumption here it's, it's it's parts of it were kind of tough to read on a moral level i have to say
2: <laughs> yeah 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 no i i've heard that that people are uh have described it as you know ridiculous which has both uh, a disdain and a humor in it this this the term to ridicule uh but people have described it as disgusting and like with with horror that they read it but i really did Want to be fair to the people that I researched because I, I approached it with not moral outrage but really like curiosity, like how is this possible and what's the logic that sustains this world? And I will say that when I interviewed the spenders, the, the clients who were buying bottles, I would I would recruit them either through promoters or through other networks, or I would recruit them just in the club. You know, we might go to dinner beforehand with a promoter, or I would just be standing next to them in the club. You know, the music is very loud and like the lights are low. It's, it's not like conducive for good conversation, but I would get their contact information and ask to follow up. And I would, I'd explain that I'm a writer and I'm, I'm interested about nightlife. I'd be really curious to know, you know, what you think of all of this. And then when we did interviews, it would be in a quiet coffee shop or it would be at their office, let's say. And in interviews, these rich people would describe their own spending as quite measured. Uh, modest by comparison. So they would always put it in a comparative perspective. Like they're not the worst spender. Um, you know, they're not the biggest whale. Or they would describe themselves, their current consumption in reference to the former self, right? Like I did this when I was young, but now I'm mature and I, and I know better. And they too shared this, this, uh, I wouldn't say outrage, but a moral unease with spending uh, in this way. And I think that that's because everybody knows that ostentation violates like a, a basic uh, middle class, you know, widespread norm of like, how to be disinterested, but furthermore, status is a sensitive good. It's it's not something that you can buy easily because the moment that you do, you lose status, right? You're seen as like a status seeking kind of person and therefore shallow and inauthentic. Um, and everybody embraces this discourse of authenticity now. And so- they would uh, often talk about their logic of wanting to be a part of this scene in relation to their work lives, especially for uh, people in tech or people in banking, um, also in real estate and um, yeah, other forms of financial services. They would talk about being in the VIP space as a way to meet other VIPs like themselves with whom they could do business. That they, you know, there's many opportunities to enrich their social networks if they're in these kinds of spaces. You're a part of the club if you. You go to central pay, right? If nothing else, and you couldn't talk about it and have the shared pursuit of being in the know uh, of the right places to be. And some of them were were also, yeah. Some people, some of the clients that I interviewed would also talk about the importance of being in a VIP club for them to bond with uh, other people in their office, let's say, or they would see it as a sort of efficient means to go out, especially for people who are working in finance. You know, they're working sixty hours a week or more, and so they don't have an abundant amount of time to meet women themselves, you know, and to assemble a party themselves that they would want to be at. But the VIP club is kind of organized in a way that they can go and share the share the tab you know 10 10k split between five bankers becomes much you know much more reasonable in their minds so yeah on the whole in those quiet moments of interviews I could capture how rich people themselves are quite uneasy with this form of consumption. And they would talk more about their work lives. And they, and some of them also shared this work hard, play hard discourse. Yeah. And so they like saw their themselves as deserving of these occasional breaks because everybody knows that spending on this scale is not, Deserving, right? Like this is a this is like the the bad rich behavior, and they wanted to distance themselves from that. So I think this is the benefit as a qualitative researcher of combining interviews with ethnography, because in the moment people can can act really outrageous and kind of revel in it. So you know, at, when the champagne bottles are coming out, these discourses of like I'm a moderate spender, you know, or like. I, you know, I'm 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 not that uh, undeserving kind of wasteful person. All of that goes out the window. And that's because the club is really good at suspending rationality and creating a different world in which the value really is being seen and outdoing other rich people and and creating a pleasure in that, like a, a pleasure in waste. And like when it when it goes well, I mean a club is very good at, at orchestrating it. Like they'll If I could go, should I go into the minutia of how they do it? Yeah. So when two big spenders come to a club they seat them in a particular way so that you know you don't put them near the bar because that's where you know the the uh, the filler or like the civilians are, are going to buy their drinks <laughs> at the at the bar yeah you have
1: these very in-depth descriptions of the like physical layouts of the club you have a, a diagram at one point you talk about the the very intricately scripted and and uh determined like this kind of person at the club who has this kind of money sits here. These kind of people, the the, the idea of the filler, like they're there because you need bodies in the club, but they're not the ones who are going to be engaging in the champagne wars or whatever. It's a very rigid social hierarchy within the club space itself.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so they'll put the two whales, you know, or the big spenders kind of opposite each other, close to the DJ because that's the focal point of the action. Um, they'll move the table where the promoters have brought all of these beautiful girls. They might be sitting, you know, at a table on the left, but they'll move them to the right to be closer to the big spender on the assumption that, you know, more models, more bottles will be sold. Um, I mean, there's definitely, like, it's a it's a well-planned architecture in this space that enables the show such that if you were to if you were an outsider and you walked in you might think that it looks like this spontaneous show right and it just it just so happens that there's so many you know very good looking and very wealthy people that's that's very clearly demarcated in gendered lines as well and you you would think it sort of happens spontaneously um, but it's it's very highly orchestrated
1: so i want to talk about the role of uh, the girls and the promoters in just a minute, but uh, to stay focusing on the the whales and the the clients for a minute, when you describe in the book your interviews with these clients who are ordering this bottle service in these clubs, it it made me think of the sociologist, Rachel Sherman, when she writes in her book, Uneasy Street, about the uh, lives of uh, very wealthy people in New York City, I remember that in that book, she discusses how many of them sort of relativize their wealth. These are like the 1% or even the 0.1% in some cases, but they seemingly are able to sleep at night by being able to say, well, yes, I'm very wealthy, but at least I'm not like that person over there. That person is like the are truly wealthy and they're engaging in the truly conspicuous displays of consumption and truly wasteful forms of consumption and so it becomes a way to relativize and and sort of uh as i said allow themselves to to fall asleep at night saying well at least i'm not like that kind of rich person over there i may be engaged in some kind of over-the-top spending but but i'm nowhere near the worst and so that becomes a way for them to uh justify their own uh spending and and behavior uh that's that happens on on the one hand. On the other hand, also there is a kind of rational economic sense for some of these clients, right? I remember at one point in the book, you discuss somebody who says, "Yes, I went out to the club uh, and brought you know several potential business partners, and we dropped fifty thousand dollars there. But in the club, I secured this two hundred and fifty thousand dollar business deal. So you know, fifty thousand dollar investment for a certain kind of experience with this client." Resulted in a two hundred fifty thousand dollar deal. Can you talk about the construction of that kind of world? Uh, you, you you reflect in the book on how it's important for these businessmen to have a kind of shared set of social experiences with each other that they that, that you know shows that you are a part of the the this sort of VIP class, um, which then. If you can establish that with the person, then it says, okay, this is the kind of person I can do business with. So can you talk about that dynamic?
2: Yeah, sure. So this is also a double-edged sword because for a lot of people who are going out into the club and spending in ways that are perceived as reckless, nobody would want to do business with them. Right. And this is why you see generally it's younger, younger men who are buying bottles. Um, it might be, you know, sons of successful entrepreneurs or themselves, kind of early entrepreneurs. You generally don't see men in their like 50s or 60s that are that are dropping tabs like this unless they're like the recent divorcees and they're <laughs> and they're like out, you know, for for a wild one off. But on the whole, it's Younger people, and and I'm reminded of uh, the rich kids of Instagram. Do you know that Tumblr? That yeah, it, it curates the the kind of most ostentatious and offensive uh, pictures of young people that are uh, wasting champagne in extremely creative ways. Um, my colleagues uh, Bruno Cousin and Sebastian Chauvin and I. Created a, a database. We're still working on the paper in which we document, you know, uh, uh, what are the different forms of conspicuous consumption, and uh yeah, we we documented dozens of different ways of wasting champagne, pouring it in your dog's bowl, pouring it in your bubble bath, drinking it underwater. I mean, come on, <laughs> right? But like, it's called rich kids of Instagram, and there's no children, right? It's just like younger younger people. And it's it's um, behavior that would come with certain risks and liabilities for older elites who have more responsibility and are assumed to not be you know spending in ways that are seen as reckless. So yeah, the the rich guys that I the rich clients that I spoke with, they would often talk about the importance of spending in relation to their work lives. Like, yeah, I spent money at the club. I know it looks bad, but I got a business deal out of it. But it's really hard as an ethnographer to actually follow that through and try to examine, like, what what really are the institutional ties and consequences for elites that participate in this scene? Um, I, I would say that, that what I captured is rather an interesting discourse about how important it was for them to show that they are serious as workers. And I think that's because they know that it looks really bad to be consuming in these ways, right? They are in some ways spending on a level that is on par with the dominant critical discourse of the undeserving poor. You know, the undeserving poor are people who are seen as not working for their money, getting welfare from the government um, and spending on irresponsible things yeah and and the discourse of the undeserving poor gets brought up you know time and again and you know adds all kind of destruction to efforts to create a, a stronger safety net. but you could also think of like, Wealthy people are are also aware of m- multiple forms of stigma on wealthy on wealth itself. Um, and we know from from lots of social science data that both rich and poor people alike tend to describe themselves as closer to the middle than they really are, right? Like everybody wants to seem middle-class in America and not be the the outliers. And like who would be the undeserving wealthy? It would be somebody who didn't earn their money, who's not working hard, right? They're inherited their money or they're entitled. Uh, And it would be somebody who's spending badly, right? Who's like consumption habits reveals that, uh, that they don't deserve the money that they have because they're spending recklessly. So I think that what I captured in the interviews was an effort for, uh, the rich to show themselves on an appropriate moral or symbolic divide of being a good wealthy person, even though they were clearly engaging in pretty tacky behavior.
1: I don't know how indicative he is of all of the wealthy clients that you included in the book and that you interviewed, but I have to read this quote from Sam uh, doing uh, interviews you did with him. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you're asking him about these rituals, and he says, quote, I've never seen anything like it. It's disgusting, kind of. I thought about this before. Like, is this wrong? Is this a bad use of money? And I don't think it is, because it's money spent that creates a lot of good. The money's not better spent on, like, welfare. I mean, I just told you I love Charles Murray, unquote. Charles Murray, of course, is the uh, right-wing social scientist who many people describe as advancing very openly racist views, uh, not to mention ones in defense of wealth and privilege and hierarchy. Uh, Quote, but really, it's money that's going back into the economy. And I don't think it's better to just give that money like to a homeless person or anything. So when I say it's disgusting, I'm not approaching it from the lens of let's feed the starving babies, unquote. (laughs) That just sort of speaks for itself, I have to
2: say. Yeah, yeah. So, so yes. So Sam, who works in who works in finance, and would describe himself as very hardworking. Um, and and indeed, I think he he puts in a lot of hours at his job. Yeah, he's indicative of one extreme poll of people who think that um, you know trickle down economics works and and they're they're fine they're fine with luxury consumption in all of its forms as opposed to you know more redistributive uh, means of of allocating funds. But it but what he really took issue with what and and in this he was he was much uh, in in this he had a lot in common with the other wealthy clients that I interviewed, he really took issue with the fact that when somebody is buying luxury experiences or when they're, when they're say, in this scene purchasing those bottles, they're too obviously status-seeking, that they're doing it for the status. And that, in his view, is the immoral part.
1: So we've been discussing the clients, the people around whom this whole world revolves because they're the ones who are spending the money. Uh, but you also spend maybe the majority of the book talking about promoters and girls. So can you uh, talk about uh, these two players, who are they and what role do they play within this world? And, and why is it that the clients that we were just discussing are want these girls to be present in these clubs so badly?
2: I'll start with the promoters because they were my entry point and I spend the most time with them in the field. Um, Promoters are hired on a nightly basis as they work as independent contractors for clubs to bring in the right crowd that's beautiful women and people, mostly men, with money. And the promoter's So they all share a really interesting story about how they ended up in this job, which by the way, starting out, they could make $200 a night, but if they're proven to bring in a a high volume of beautiful women, what they call the quantity of quality, they can make upwards of $1,000 a night. Imagine they're working five, six nights a week, and then they get hired for private parties to fly girls to Centre Pay or wherever. So they have these, this sort of, you know, jet set lifestyle and and access to really wealthy people around the world. So they they kind of understand, and and their own backgrounds are not from privilege. The majority of them that I uh, followed and that I met didn't uh, come from money or go to college or finish college, but they had this incredible relational skill where they're really easy in talking with women they can they they have no qualms at all of like picking up women on the street and in fact that's that's part of how they recruit young women to be a part of their network they they drive these big SUVs and park them in specific places in new york like in soho right where all the modeling agencies and the casting agencies are and then they'll just hop out of their car and go you know go follow a woman down the street and then compliment her talk with her oh oh you're from poland my girlfriend's from poland you're gonna have so much fun we're gonna have a birthday party tonight you know come out they get their phone numbers and then they just keep (laughs) keep inviting them and, and calling them to come out
1: let me pause you there for a second because you describe this, you, you see this scene yourself over and over again on the streets of New York City. And th- this is just another thing that the average person has no idea is going on, that these promoters are out on the streets chasing around beautiful women all the time. And assumedly, if you are a woman who fits this description of physical beauty in the new streets of New York City, you are used to being chased around by these promoters, being stopped in public all the time and get trying... And them trying to get you to come out with them. This is just like a normal part of your life at this point. Uh,
2: look, I think that uh, beautiful women um, are attracting all kinds of attention, wanted and un- and unwanted. So it's one of many uh, encounters on the street that she she would have. Um, and by the way, I met promoters myself when I was nineteen, and I've my first trip abroad to try modeling overseas, I went to Milan and the modeling agency arranged my apartment and they said, Oh, someone will meet you at the agency to bring you to your apartment. So I thought it was somebody that worked at the agency. Right. And I was a college student, so I I didn't have very much money, didn't didn't speak Italian or anything. So, you know, Maximo met me at the airport, (laughs) helped me with my luggage and then invited me to dinner and to a club, you know, that night and every night thereafter. And it, yeah, at first I was like, what a night. Guy, <laughs> oh, how great! You know, I, I, there's a party tonight, and then it took me a while to understand he didn't work for the agency. He worked for the club, and the promoters will also ingratiate themselves with model agencies and be a part of this economy of favors. So the promoters are helping the agencies, so the agencies will introduce them to girls. They're helping the girls. They drive those SUVs so that they can fit more bodies in the car and drive the girls to their castings. And this is an important service, especially for a you know a newcomer to a city who doesn't know her way around, maybe can't afford lunch that he's going to treat her to, doesn't, you know, doesn't know very many people. So he, he helps her with uh, establishing a, a network of connections and opens all kinds of doors to her in the city that the kinds of opportunities, you know, being in a nightclub or being in a glamorous restaurant, even with a subpar meal, because often these are the free dishes that the kitchen is bringing out to the models, but getting access to that does make the girl's it kind of lines up the expectation of what a fashion model is and what it, what the lifestyle of fashion is which is very glamorous and very rich right but the reality of the modeling industry what i what i found in my first book is that the majority of models don't make very much money at all and many of them are in debt to their agencies and they're living quite precariously in these very expensive cities so yeah promoters are kind of opening all of these opportunities to them giving them all kinds of favors uh, building experiences, building ties with them. A promoter told me that there can be no night without the day. So, the daytime, you know, it might start late because they're, they're up all night. So, but around by like 12 or certainly two o'clock in the afternoon, promoters are back at work, which for them, their work is relational work. It's building relationships and, and building this economy of favors and getting the girls indebted to him in a way that doesn't feel like a, a, a transaction. Right, but it feels like a friendship, which is friendship is accumulated debt and reciprocity. Yeah, so that's what they're doing strategically uh, with the girls. So promoters are really good in um, in being friends, I would say, for a living, like that's their job.
1: So can you describe, let's say, uh, just give us an example of a promoter on the street in Soho who sees a model walking by. If he successfully convinces her to go out with him, can you describe that situation for her from that initial conversation? What, what happens after that? What are the steps that lead them all the way to the club?
2: Okay, sure. So this is one of many ways that promoters will recruit young women into their network. So he'll approach her on the street, get her phone number. The the critical thing is to get the phone number. Because if you get her phone number, then you can text her, you can let her know what's going on, you can invite her to things that are unrelated to nightlife, right? Like, let's go bowling, (laughs) like we're going to the movies, or here's lunch, or let me drive you on a rainy day. Yeah, so the economy of favors kicks in. And then a promoter will assemble the girls, again, Driving in the city to go pick them up to bring them to the meatpacking district, and it's not even driving in Manhattan anymore. It's also the the you know real estate has become so expensive in New York that model apartments are now in Jersey or they're in Brooklyn, and so it's it's not a it's not a um, a small favor you know to get a ride from a promoter, and so and then there's a free dinner, and the restaurants are often. Either owned or operated by somebody who's connected to the club, and so promoters will um, will get a comped meal. And you know, comped is compliments of the house. Yeah, but but also it's it's also quite a compliment, I think, to to get into a chic restaurant and get treated to a free meal. The meals are hit or miss, <laughs> I would say, because it's yeah uh, because they're free. The kitchen is is just sending out plates, so it's often family style. Usually you don't order off of the menu, you know, d- dinner could really be like at the sushi restaurant. It, it might be leftover cucumber rolls. Right. So I always ate before I went out, but dinner will be around 10 wraps up around 12. And then the promoter will bring the girls to the club. And, and it, he's hoping for, you know, at least uh, around uh, eight, you know, give or take the more the better. And when promoters get to the club, they're assigned a table to stay at, and then they get free drinks. And you know, it's it's usually not the best champagne, but you know, whatever prosecco or like uh, white wine is available. And then the promoter really has a tough job at that point, I would say, because it's it's already been a long day for him, and at that point, he has to make it fun for the girls. And he has to embody the life of the party. So many promoters uh, are really systematic about it. They don't drink. I mean, some of them do, of course, but but the ones that had been in the game for the longest time, like twenty years, they uh, they didn't drink alcohol. But they were really good at rousing affect. You know, dancing, flirting, joking, toasting. If uh, trying to keep the the energy up for the club, which is really hard. I mean, some some promoters. It's a a huge amount of emotional labor.
1: Um, Sorry, before you go on, you just described a minute ago uh, the the part of getting the free meal for these girls, which is no small thing if you are broke, right? You're just you're happy to have someone paying for your meal. But also the provision of that meal by the promoter creates a sense of expectation that you are going to then accompany the promoter to the club, right? You described multiple times yourself being confronted by promoters when you tried to leave after the meal, not go with them to the club. They were very insistent that because you had showed up to the meal, you are now expected to do this kind of labor for them in going to the club.
2: That's right. I got uh, I got scolded a few times when one accused me of the dine and dash. <laughs> like, you can't do a dine and dash, which is a really moment in fieldwork because it it reveals that this is a transaction right this is not just a gift that's building up a friendship that I, I do have an obligation to repay the debt and usually that's that is kind of under the veneer of like let's have dinner together or oh, let's go for a drink at the club together but really the promoter is watching the clock because he needs the girls to be at the table for four hours and he needs them to stay at the table so that his table doesn't look empty right because at some point the manager of the club is going to be Circul- circling around and seeing which promoter has the quantity of quality, yeah. So, so for the most part, I think promoters are going to illustrate the ways. Of course, we're always intertwining intimacy and money in our relationships all the time. Promoters are just much more strategic and explicit because it is in it's their job, but they're really good at hiding it, right, and making it feel like leisure, not labor, like friendship, not debt, and so on. And but there are these moments where it goes wrong. Right. If one partner doesn't oblige by the unspoken terms of their engagement, then it comes out that like, no, you, I paid the gas to get you here tonight. I need you to stay for four hours. That's the terms of the deal. Um, and so usually it's unspoken. So it, it's in those moments of violating or breaching that you 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 get the real explicit consequences.
1: <laughs> so you just mentioned that the promoters have rounded up these girls brought them to dinner. The expectation is that they now go to the club. You have to get in the door of the club, which is not the easiest thing in the world. uh, And you describe in some detail uh, what that looks like, what the parameters are for whether or not you're allowed in the door, what the doormen, uh, what what their expectations are, and, and the kind of balance of the crowd that they have been instructed to allow through the front door. Can you talk about those dynamics?
2: Yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting moment of uh, socially acceptable discrimination. At, at that moment, when somebody is trying to come into a club, they're assessed uh, in very, very different terms by gender. So um, men can come in with money, and women can come in with beauty. And again, it's beauty of a very narrow sort. So at one club, the door person is instructed not to allow anybody, any woman in that's shorter than herself. And she's five foot seven. So, you know, in heels, she's a bit taller. And there are moments where even models are told that they can't come in because they don't have the right shoes. They don't have the high heels. There's a moment where... I was following promoters all day long, and I didn't have time to run home to get my high heels. And I'm, I'm really nervous when I'm walking in the, the door with the, if I'm going to make it in. And I did make it in, but the promoters are commenting, where are your heels? So it's, yeah, it's, it's very clear that for, for women, they must have this uh, recognizable bodily capital to come in. And um, those moments can also be extremely painful. So um, there's yeah lots of instances where people describe being rejected or witnessing rejections that are quite punitive. So uh, women who don't meet the bar of beauty are really fiercely excluded because shorter women or heavier women, you know, women that don't conform to looking like fashion models, they threaten to lower the status of the space, and so they're treated really host- with a lot of hostility. Um, It's quite common to hear um, uh, the term "midget" was was used to refer to a woman who was like under five six, and uh, and promoters embraced this language as well uh, because promoters also inflate their value by being surrounded by tall, beautiful women. So they see women, you know, women who don't look like that are are a threat to the promoters as well, and promoters have different ways of dealing. With you know what happens when a when a woman who doesn't meet their criteria of beauty tries to come into their group, and uh, and it's an issue for them because like a friend a girl who's coming out wants to bring her friend or or you know wants to bring her cousin who's out of town or whatever but the 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 friend is only yeah you know, five foot five and uh, and the promoter has to tell her that she can't come on the basis of her beauty and that's another breach. Of this uh, implicit contract that everybody is here as friends, right? Everybody is here for leisure, but you have to be at least five, you know, ideally five foot nine to participate, or you have to be wearing the right clothes to participate.
1: In addition to these highly gendered aspects of who gets let in and who doesn't, I was shocked to read that there is clearly an instruction to these people working the doors to let in an almost entirely white crowd which i i found fairly shocking not something that you would expect in new york city the cosmopolitan capital of the united states uh that they are very intent on maintaining a mostly white environment
2: yeah so at the time that i was doing the field work it was um not uncommon to be in a VIP club in the meatpacking district right, or the Hamptons or Central Pay. And um, it would be almost entirely white people with the exception of the staff. So the people who are working security or the people uh, like promoters who are um, disproportionately brown and black men. You know, the the elite is not often thought of as a space to examine dynamics of white supremacy. Um, but that's because it's the unmarked category of mostly white people, right? Um I think elites are are an excellent case to try to understand uh the formation and the protection of whiteness, um, and also masculine privilege.
1: In the last few years, especially, there's been significant examination of Discussions of white privilege and and all the rest of it, you know, feminism, people reading Robin DiAngelo. This clearly has not uh, seeped its way into the VIP club scene.
2: Yeah, I mean, I did the field work ten years ago, so it's possible that this has changed with the embrace of diversity and the rhetoric of inclusion that that you see across all levels of society and sectors. So I would be surprised if there wasn't at least some more inclusivity. So yeah, it's it's possible that 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 has changed, but at the time that I was doing the research, it was definitely not lost on the promoters who would look around and see, you know, all of the valuable social ties that they believed that they would be able to network with were white. They saw them, you know, and they they kind of saw themselves as outsiders and saw their their opportunity to be among this space as being possible through all of these you know beautiful white bodies that they were like cultivating. So um yeah pr- and some promoters I spent a lot of time in the in the book with a couple of promoters who are black and brown immigrant men and they they had a really i found surprising sense of their racial classification as working to their advantage. They would say like okay uh because I'm black well, white women are more attracted to me, right? Because of all of these uh, racial stereotypes about black masculine sexuality, or the end, they would also say, and because I'm black, I can see that these uh, white rich people think that I'm more fun. You know, I'm somehow exotic, that I have access to something that they're going to want. You know, so they would kind of think about their, you know, their own position, which on the one hand is you know rife with all kinds of stereotypes and and oppression but they would also think about how to use it to their advantage.
1: Hi, this is Olufemi Otaiwo, and you're listening to The Dig.
0: You can support the podcast at patreon.com. The Dig is a podcast produced in conjunction with Jacobin magazine. And yes, Jacobin is a print publication, not just a place for online commentary, but long form, serious print journalism and socialist analysis. The magazine is released quarterly and runs at around 160 pages, filled with award-winning design and the ideas that movements need to thrive. You can join more than 70,000 Jacobin subscribers supporting this vital work for just $15 for your first year. This is a huge discount available to Dig listeners. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's very extensive archive. Their latest issue is on aging. It describes the challenges facing welfare states, debates the value of generational analysis, and asks what kind of society our elders deserve. I highly recommend that you check it out. You can access this deal by going to bit.ly digjacobin, all lowercase. That's bit.ly digjacobin, all lowercase. There's a link in the show notes.
1: So talk about what it actually is like once you're inside. Uh, What is the group of girls that the promoter has brought into this club? What are they bringing to the environment that these wealthy clients want so badly?
2: Yeah. So it's a, it's a large group of really tall, strikingly pretty women and, that alone communicates so much, like just to just to walk by and see a, uh, a kind of a gathering of women who look like they just came off of the catwalk is so striking to people that it immediately communicates like whichever man is in their presence must be important. <laughs> right? Like that's the there's, there's like the, the part of like very important people that, uh, that kind of manifests immediately is very striking to the eye. Yeah, I mean I mentioned like they have the high heels they're standing up they're they're encouraged not to sit down they're encouraged to stand up on top of the sofas and on top of the tables right so like everybody sees them and it's so effective it's uh, it's really interesting even even promoters who describe their own personal taste for a partner as not looking like a fashion model understood that they need to date fashion models and in order to accumulate more fashion models around them, because it'll signal to the clubs, it'll signal to the clients that they must be a person of value if they're surrounded by these beautiful women. And of course, you know, the the irony, of course, is that the models themselves, most of them are, you know, they don't have any claims to material power. Right? They're not getting paid for what they're doing. Maybe they're getting free drinks. They're getting a free night out. But it's nowhere near in comparison to the fungibility of assets that are being amassed by a club, which can charge you know, thousands of dollars more than a bottle of alcohol is worth. Or the social capital that's being accumulated by all of these rich men who are able to signal their importance you know, to each other by virtue of being in this space. And so the women are creating all of this value just in their presence. So I I often think of this as it's a world constructed by men and for men, but it's run on girls and it's run on their free labor. And this is a really important point, not just because it expands our idea of what labor is. They're not getting paid, but they're generating a whole bunch of value, Um, but they are getting compensated in a way that feels Just to them, and it feels appropriate to them. But why don't they get actual money for what they're doing? Right. And what I found was that women wanted to see their participation as uh, fun and as leisure and not as labor. They didn't want to be confused with the other category of women who are in clubs who are getting paid for their bodies, and those are sex workers or women who are seen as too close to sex workers like the bottle hostesses, the women that are cocktail waitressing and bringing the bottles. and They're seen as being more sexually available. People widely describe this as like a dirty job. So there is a strong kind of moral opprobrium. Uh, to be expected against sex work, right and uh, and a, sh- a sense of shame if a woman is too strategic in monetizing her body. You know, women that were seen as going out for the wrong reasons would be women who are going out to meet a rich man or uh, you know for like a, a wealthy husband. This was seen as is someone described it as whale hunting, right? Or someone also described this as soft hooking, right? It's it's like being a hooker, but you know, instead of explicit money, it's you know, shoes and handbags. But all of this was looked down upon by the clients, by the promoter, and by the girls themselves, who didn't want to see themselves as close to sex workers. They didn't want to get paid. So quite paradoxically, you know, even though they're generating all of this value, really what they gain is a symbolic value by being. Not paid. (laughs) This
1: is so fascinating because in every single interaction from from the initial encounter on the street to showing up at the club and everything in between, there's this sense that the the promoters especially are trying to cultivate of like, this is a, a fun lifestyle. We're having fun. We have genuine relationships with each other. I know my girls. I take care of my girls. The girls have relationships with each other that is very central to how they are conceiving of what they are doing but it's such a fine dance socially there's so many red lines that you could cross at any moment where you go too far in this direction and all of a sudden you're seen as something like a, a sex worker or you're like you said you're here for the wrong reasons and so, uh, this this permeates this entire world. You're 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 constantly having to be sure that you don't run afoul of these actually quite rigid social norms that are expected of you, and that you even want for yourself because you don't want to think of yourself as somebody who, who is different from your own self-conception of why you're involved in this world, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So One Promoter puts it really well that everybody is using each other, but there's a difference between use and abuse. And people are like very aware of when that line has been crossed. But there's another point about this that I think is really kind of central to the whole argument of the book is about how gender hierarchy operates through consent. So clearly, there's exploitation happening here in a really sort of basic structural sense, meaning that men are in a better position to be able to extract value and make profit off of women's bodily capital, right? Women's beauty. So, beauty, you know, everybody talks about it. Economists always talk about it as an asset, right? More beautiful people get more doors open. They do better in the labor market. They do better in the marriage market, right? Particularly women. Okay, yes, all of that is true, but it really misses how. Beauty as a form of capital functions under conditions of patriarchy because beauty is, you know, valuable for women. It opens all of these doors, but it produces value in a much greater scale for men—material value—whereas women are getting this symbolic sense of inclusion uh, of, of being in this. And so, I, you could think of it as a, you know, if you if you use the concept of uh, uh, traffic in women, and I don't mean trafficking women in the way like the U.S. State Department describes, you know, a, a complete coercive system, but I mean traffic in the old anthropological sense of the world of the word in which women are exchanged among communities where the power holders are men as a means to forge more power that goes to men. So women are, you know, married off, you know sisters are married and daughters are married. Um, and that's the sort of logic of creating kinship ties, strategic kinship ties through the circulation of women. I draw on the anthropologist Gail Rubin, who's drawing on Levi Strauss to make this argument. Um, And what I saw in this VIP club was that indeed there's this circulation of women in which men are controlling the flow and and men are profiting off of it. And women have that asset of beauty, but it's worth more in men's hands because they control the system. And why do women consent to a system of exploitation like that? You can't explain how the whole system operates without attending to the meanings and the pleasures and the symbolic gain that women get by participating in it. So they consent to it because it's meaningful to them. Promoters are making it very meaningful. That's their professional, you know, that's the, that's what they do for a job is to, is to construct the relationship as fun, as meaningful, as reciprocity um such that some of the girls would go out with promoters and say explicitly they didn't want to get paid and they're just there to support their friend and they know they know that promoters are making money they know that the club of course they can see is making a lot of money they didn't know exactly how much some of them were quite surprised to know they're like oh he's making a $1000 tonight that's that's pretty high but they're quite okay with that because it's it's fun for them but the moment that they feel that there's abuse, that they've crossed a boundary, right, that they're confused with sex workers, or that they are not being treated equitably, uh, or in the way that that is fun, if they don't have fun, they just leave. And they definitely can. So it's a it, it's Yeah, so, it, so I think that traffic is a really great um, concept to to apply in this case.
1: You talk repeatedly throughout the book about how promoters are trying to use their personal relationships that they have developed with these girls to try to get them to come out. And they use words like support. Will you come out and support me? Clearly trying to, to capitalize on these relationships that they have so assiduously built. Did you ever feel that yourself since you kind of like became a part of this world for some of these promoters (laughs) it did did you ever get the text from a promoter that's being like ashley will you come out and support me and you feel like a twinge of like i i this guy did give me this meal i do have this relationship with this guy like I, i i do have to get out there and support him
2: uh well yes i felt it but for different reasons and that's because as an ethnographer our research depends on getting people to like us and getting people to tolerate us and getting people to do an interview, which is a, it's a big ask for, for people, you know, tell me, tell me your life story, open up and tell me all of your intimate moments, right. It depends on what you're asking, but it's a time commitment and it's, and it's a, I think it's an emotional commitment for somebody to to open up to an ethnographer. And so you know, an ethos of feminist ethnography is that we want to give back to our subjects. We don't just want to take and run. we want to we want to have a have an exchange and you know have have a meaningful uh, role in their lives as they're doing for us. And so I did think that like okay, one way that I can. Uh, be helpful to them as they're being helpful to me is to show up because I know they always need girls to, to show up wearing their high heels. Yeah. So I, I, I tried very hard to keep that commitment. So every single promoter that I did interviews with, I would show up at least once, but often many more nights at his club, but I very quickly ran into the problem that led me to the, this main insight about gender and exploitation and traffic. And that was when I started going out with, um, you know, one promoter and then I do some, some more interviews. Okay. I promised to go out with more promoters. And then the promoter from last week sees me out and he's like, what are you doing out with him? (laughs) You're my girl. And, and I understood right away, like the possessive pronoun is so telling because promoters see girls as a resource, and they're trying to assert ownership over those girls, right? Like this is the condition of creating a traffic uh, or, you know, a a circuit of traffic. So I would have to very awkwardly say like, oh, I'm sorry, you know, I'm doing this research. And so I'm just trying to go in as many directions as possible. But I had too many invitations. And I had too, too many obligations to try to fill them all. So I was dropping people left and right. But but I would explain it as a it's a research faux pas, not a personal feeling.
1: It sounds like you're essentially implying I'm here because I'm a sociologist and they're saying, <laughs> no, you're here because you're my girl.
2: Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But the they're, they're always using this uh, possessive pronoun, you know, like um, these are my girls. Look at my girls. Early on helped me see that girls girls function as a form of capital here, but it's not a it's not a straightforward like individual form of capital. If you read Bourdieu, then you you know you understand he's trying to enrich uh, human and economic capital by accounting for culture, including the body. But it really remains as like an individual resource. Like you can move through different fields and capitalize wherever your value gets recognized. And in this in this field, what I saw is that ownership really matters. And because the field is owned and operated by men, uh, the value of all that capital goes to men. So indeed, even though promoters are making a pretty great wage, especially for people who did, didn't have any special skills training, some of the promoters were making like $200,000, $200, $250,000 a year. Uh, they felt quite frustrated that they couldn't crack into the upper echelons of the economic elite because they had fantasies that they would be able to do business with the people that they're servicing. Now, promoters that stay in their niche of nightlife and hospitality can do quite well. Like they can meet investors to open up their own clubs uh, or their own, you know, a hotel or restaurant. And so they can, yeah, they can find upward mobility if they stay kind of in their lane. But the promoters who were the kind of most tragic cases that I followed were the ones who imagined that they would be accepted among the elite and they'd be able to do like, you know, business to business brokerage with like oil rich families from around the world. And in conversation with the clients, I understood that they didn't take the promoters seriously as anything other than entrepreneurs of the night.
1: Those sections of your book are kind of heartbreaking to read. I was reading about these promoters and thinking that they're largely pretty scuzzy people who are exploiting these girls. But then you get a sense through your conversations with them on this topic in particular that they they believe what they are saying about their intimate relationships with these ultra-wealthy Clients, they're like, no, no, no. This is not just business. This is in the same way that they talk about their relationship with the girls as being like an actual significant personal relationship in their life. Like, no, no, no. I'm not just kissing the ass of this rich person to try to get money from him. Like, I we actually have a substantive relationship. And then to the, hear them learn in real time, basically, that, uh, in fact, no, they don't really have that kind of relationship with these rich people. You kind of have to feel for this promoter a little bit, because clearly their heart is being broken in that moment.
2: Yeah, no, thank you. That That's really an important thing that you picked up on. Because when I started the project, I, you know, this is probably my feminist training, I, I really saw the promoters as cozy <laughs> kinds of characters. And I could imagine a book in which they are the very clear villains of it. And I thought that I would probably write in that way. And in spending more and more time with them, I, I really began to feel a kind of empathy with them through the proximity through spending time and, and kind of seeing how they really embody the spirit of the American dream, right? The idea that like, it doesn't matter where you come from, you can, you can climb your way up. Yeah. And, and it's true that they really have climbed quite remarkably far, but it also shows the limits I think of social capital and girl capital, right? Like it only takes them so far. The fact that they have these ties, you know, it, it's a certain kind of tie that is predicated on a larger A hierarchy of like class and race. It's like a serious divide between them, you know, disproportionately uh, from you know modest backgrounds and brown and black men trying to crack into and do business with this global elite. So it really shows the limits of what they're able to do, but also the frustrations that they feel because their definition of success comes to be the super rich. They can't see two hundred fifty thousand a year as success.
1: Well, to me, that's part of the tragedy of what we're describing here, and with the tragedy of when a social world becomes so oriented towards uh, these ultra wealthy people that they become the 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 standard by which more and more people begin to judge their sense of success and self worth, and that's just it seems like a, a a toxic thing for a society to you know to. For more and more parts of a society, for a larger group of people to be making such ultra-wealthy people the standard by which they judge whether or not they are successful in life, whether or not they're leading a meaningful life, leading the life that they want to live. It's it's all uh, done in comparison to these uh, ultra-wealthy people, and it it has this kind of trickle-down effect on so many people and the rest of society.
2: Yeah, of course. And the way to show wealth is through positional goods, because that communicates your status. But status is never absolute, right? It's always relative. It's always in relation to who has more. And unfortunately, our tendency as humans is to look up rather than down. So we're always comparing someone who's higher than us, rather than, you know, how far we've come ourselves, which means that with more economic inequality, with more wealth concentration, there's just always further to go. So it's never complete, this project of, uh, uh, of, of uh, acquiring status.
1: Can you talk about the changes in this scene over time and how increasing economic inequality and also changes in the real estate market in cities like New York have changed the way that these clubs function? I mean, you're describing. It seems like most of the book is set in the meatpacking district of Manhattan. Recently, I watched as part of my uh, tour through some uh, Al Pacino's uh, filmography. I watched the the uh, film Cruising, which is set in the meatpacking district. I believe it came out in 1980, but at that time, the meatpacking district was completely, you know, dead. Uh, that it was known as a place. Uh, for sex workers to be uh, hanging out. And the movie depicts uh, some gay BDSM clubs uh, that are are very far from the environment that you're discussing. They're are, there are, there are not places for this kind of conspicuous uh, consumption. It was like the site of these very marginalized and in many ways oppressed scenes of gay men who are uh, engaging in sex acts. Um, so within... The course of only a few decades, the Meatpacking District has been transformed from the kind of place where that kind of club would exist to now being this playground for the ultra wealthy. How is it that that has happened?
2: Yeah, so the story of bottle service really is the story of the rising fortunes of a small fraction of New Yorkers who are working in uh, finance, but also real estate as the prices start to increase in the city you can see it in i think like the 1990s bottle service uh, so th- there there are many there are many club owners and former promoters who take credit for creating bottle service as a phenomenon. But the kind of general story that most people agree is that a couple of club owners who disagree about which one were in uh, Paris in the 1990s, and they saw bottle service as a convenience at a couple of uh, chic cafes. Rather than go to wait at the bar to get your drink, the server could just you know bring the whole bottle to your table and they put the mixer and you, you mix it yourself. So they take this idea with them back to New York, and they offer uh, bottle service really as a convenience at first to uh, beat wait times at the line. But a club would be predicated, or like the success of a, a club would come down to ticket sales. So everybody pays to get into the door, and then you pay, you know, some money for a drink, and then bottle service goes then from being a convenience to being a, a means of distinction in a space to show that. You've bought the right kind of bottle or you have enough money to sit in the right kind of table. It sort of transforms a night, a, the interior of a nightclub into, you know, hierarchized real estate. Um, so people end up laying credit cards in order to rent a table for the night. Yeah. And then the better the table, um, the more expensive. And then if you want to, you know, show further, then you get the fireworks coming with all of your purchases. So that. Process uh, from say the late 1990s until uh, the time that I was doing the research in 2020, the early 2010s, uh, coincides with this increase in money for people who are working in the uh, you know the fire professions, you know finance, insurance, real estate, the sort of economic drivers of the city. It, you know, coincides with a deregulation of financial services, and when you look at the charts of, uh, you know, when is the uptick of concentration of wealth? It really starts to take off in um, yeah the eighties, and then for sure in the nineteen nineties. So this transforms the real estate value and the kinds of amenities that are there in New York City. Quite drastically, so you see this uh, a gentrification, or some urban scholars called super gentrification, right? The creation of these little bubbles for the ultra-rich in cities that uh, you know coincides with the police cracking down on uh, a, a homeless or otherwise undesirable populations, and the transformations of what were like big big warehousing is the meatpacking districts. You have these like huge warehouses. They start to get bought up, you know, first the artists come in and then, you know, a couple of cafes and restaurants and then the fashion studios. There's a lot of um, photographers who are operating or used to operate there because now it's gotten so expensive that it's, it's, you know, the meatpacking district now is like a mall, you know, it's like big chains are now operating there. But um, in the 2000s, have a lot of art galleries, a lot of fashion studios, and then a lot of upscale restaurants. So it maintains its allure of uh, the historic grit of the city with just a huge influx of money. And it's not just that the clubs that I was studying were in the meatpacking district. They were concentrated there and, and often in the, in the bottom of, uh, huge hotels, uh, as well. And th- that are very expensive hotels because it's also attracting now international business people and international wealthy tourists who have a lot of money to just come and spend on this, you know, little the, the Disneyfication of, uh, of the city becomes like a, you know, consumption playground for international elites as well. But there were clubs that were, in the uh, Midtown Manhattan, also around in Soho, just a, a higher concentration of them in the meatpacking. So it's more convenient for promoters to kind of, you know, bring the girls to the restaurant there in the meatpacking and hit two or three clubs that are kind of close. But um, but of course, they can get in their SUVs and go to Midtown as well.
1: These clubs have been transformed, as you just mentioned, away from a focus on like general admission to the club and you know the the rabble uh, buying the filler, <laughs> buying uh, the entrance to the club and buying drinks, and and the economically they are now more oriented towards these uh, wealthy clients, which sounds like it has changed the clubbing experience because the the way that the club owners are meeting their bills for every month are by orienting towards these ultra wealthy people, which. Then, as we were mentioning earlier, seems to create a cascading sense of the, the, the entire enterprise is oriented towards meeting the whims and desires of these wealthy clients. Uh, and also the, the quote unquote filler is seeing these ostentatious displays of wealth and, and that becomes aspirational to the promoters. You talk at length about how the promoters are seeing this, and this is what they are aspiring to. Even those who make a good amount of money, some of the promoters you talk about making, I think, two hundred dollars to $250,000 a year, that's Trump change to them. What they really want is to get on the level of these whales who are engaging in these incredibly conspicuous uh, displays of consumption. And so it just seems to have a kind of, to make a moral judgment from my own point of view, like a poisonous... Uh, impact on this whole ecosystem, because it all becomes about these rich people and their desires, and you you come to aspire to what it is that they are doing in the club. And I assume this is just one form of this kind of conspicuous consumption that these people are uh, engaging in, that these rich clients are engaging in, and that you could probably write any number of ethnographies about the other Mm-hmm. places that these people are, are are the other social spaces the other other social ecosystems that are being created by these ultra wealthy clients uh in in their you know attempts to find some place to light more piles of money on fire
2: <laughs> right yeah yeah i mean i wouldn't disagree with the you know with the sense of moral judgment on it um and i think that many of the people that i spent a lot of time with that had been in the industry for a while also shared some of this. I mean, they would bemoan the transformation of nightlife had just become models and bottles and it was so formulaic and it was quite dull and it was less diverse. A lot of the successful A lot of the clubs that I studied in New York were owned and operated by former promoters who had got their bearings in the industry, uh, not as image promoters, you know, doing VIP clubs, but rather uh, doing those, like, I don't know, um, more underground clubs or like mass clubs in the 1990s, like Limelight or Tunnel, you know, places that were also biker bars. A couple of people had started in, you know, uh, much more diverse economically, racially um, kinds of places. And then they kind of built the Rolodex. And then as you know, people, their clientele have more money and have more desires for showing their money, then they start to evolve and create nightclubs that uh, appeal to them and can make a lot of money as well. That said, there's a t- like whatever your taste is, there will be a club for you somewhere in the world, and especially in a city like New York, right? We know that there's a really vibrant like underground electronic music scene. I just read a book called "Long Live Queer Nightlife" about the uh, underground gay clubs in London, right? And. Um, and they're kind of like radically inclusive uh, in the way that they want everybody, you know, from from all genders and and all class backgrounds to come and share in a night and feel joy in that. So there's many ways of doing doing nightlife. The the, the way that this segment of the nightlife economy uh, evolved, indeed, it it increasingly appeals to and replicates a, a certain image of elite tastes, which is extremely heteronormative, quite patriarchal, like quite white supremacist. Um, and I would not be surprised to find similar dynamics that are replicating in the art world or um, you know whatever kind of luxury services you want to look at.
1: You have this great quote in the book where you're reflecting on how promoters are mobilizing these girls to show up to the dinners and to the clubs and do what the promoters want them to do. Uh, And and you summarize it by saying, quote, exploitation works best when it feels good, unquote. Uh, And that this is really central to what everybody is doing here. Uh, But it's essential to keeping the girls who are being exploited to continue to showing up that they, that, that affective, Dimension of, of the work, the labor that they're putting into this has to feel good to them because otherwise uh, they, they would not continue to show up in these spaces, which are obviously designed to be creating pleasure. So if they're not experiencing some form of pleasure, even if we can see that their labor here is being exploited, they're not being compensated for it, um, that, that at least they need to feel good in some way. While doing it. And that is the sort of juice that allows the entire system to run.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I think that this is a, a central piece of the puzzle that we have to attend seriously as analysts if we want to understand why people participate in systems that are unfair. You know, coercion is part of the story, but I, I think it's it's much more vulnerable to challenge and critique than is pleasure. <laughs> when somebody finds pleasure in a system, even if they know that it's oppressive, I think that's much harder to dismantle. And I would have to say too, if if um, if any of the women that I spent time with and interviewed for this book, if they were to hear me talk about it, you know, or if they read the book, I don't think they'd be too surprised, right? They would be like, yeah, but you know, I'm in my twenties, I'm in New York, like this was a great, Two years of my life, <laughs> and and I, yeah, so I, I think that attending to pleasure uh, and the felt, the felt sense uh, of joy in spaces that to outsiders look you know, ridiculous or disgusting or outrageous, um, I think is really important to do. And I, you know, I gave a so I'll just give you like a short story about this. I gave a talk about this at the American Sociological Association years ago, and I remember like a. A senior cultural sociologist, like prominent scholar in the field, she came up to me afterwards, really puzzled. She was like, "Is it fun? Like, is it fun to go out like this?" And I was like, "It's really hard to convey, like how seductive the pleasures of inclusion are—to be included in the very important people's space, which is inherently exclusive right but it's it's hard to convey that when you're at a sociology conference right or on a podcast but all of the women that i had interviewed really got something out of it and that's why they gave so much into it and i would also say that the fact of being included you know part of why it feels good and this is super problematic is that it means other people are excluded it means that you're good enough to be considered beautiful and that's a relational construct which means that somebody else got excluded for not being as beautiful. So it creates these hierarchies, not just between women and men, but it also creates these hierarchies among women. And being on the upper parts of that hierarchy is itself quite seductive, um, and is is also a, a means of, of pleasure, which is deeply problematic.
1: <laughs> when I was reading the book, I kept thinking about this meme that's been fairly prominent on Twitter and elsewhere in recent years about bosses trying to prevent their workers from unionizing and the whole joke is like the boss doesn't want you to have a union he doesn't want to pay you more in wages but he will throw you a pizza party and try to make you feel like you're you're you know you're a uh, member of the family we care about you so we've got a pizza party for you uh and you know there's one that's been going around recently that's like a boss with a gigantic you know supersized piece and it says like on the underside of the pizza box like Please don't unionize.
0: <laughs> and so, like,
1: it seems like what you're describing is sort of like a, an ultra high end version of this. Like, the pizza tastes way better in the VIP club, like the equivalent of, of what the pizza is, you know? Like, the, the, the affective pleasures are more the, 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 the boss, quote unquote, who is exploiting these girls has much more to offer them than, you know, takeout from Domino's um but like fundamentally the d- the dynamic is the same and fundamentally the the people who are doing the exploiting are are working very hard uh to you know make these girls happy enough with the pizza that they don't decide to leave
2: <laughs> right absolutely it has to be worthwhile to participate
1: yes. i mean this is what you know marxists are cons- why they're so concerned with the development of class consciousness like this in order to convince a given workforce that they are being exploited and that they need to uh, organize in order to change their conditions or whatever. I mean, the the, the first part of that is to realize that this is indeed what's happening and the world could look uh, different. I mean, obviously, that's maybe easier if you're uh, working on a grimy auto factory line or if you're (laughs) an exploited, you know, non-tenure track uh, professor at a college. uh, You know, it's easier to convince those kind of workers uh, that what is happening to them is exploitative and abusive than it is to uh, convince somebody who is at a, out at a, a VIP club. Maybe for for no other reason than that the air, uh, the environment, the atmosphere of that of that place is saturated with uh, the intoxications of, of the wealthy. Like you're like what's happening there is is you, you get to hang out with these rich people and so you get to feel like you're one of them. and as you mentioned, that is that's a heady mix to be. Uh, contending within your own mind.
2: Part of the value of being a girl is precisely not getting paid for it. Do you see what I mean? Like they, they go out and they're not in the category of a wage earner. They're there getting the complimentary meal, which is quite a compliment to get included, right? They're getting all of this free stuff and that uh, the value comes from not getting paid. So it, I think that it's really different to imagine like waking, waking girls up, you know, to, to the system of exploitation, which when their labor is deliberately defined as leisure. Yeah. And there, and there's a, there's something really at stake to recognize it as labor, um, which means that you're no longer, you know, in the, um, in the category of being, you know, just complimented alone.
1: You have conversations with some of these girls in the book where you're, you know, skirting around this issue of whether what they are doing is labor. And they all are like, absolutely not. This is not what we're doing because they yeah. don't want to change how they experience this experience effectively.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And I also, at one point, I was like, okay, we can maybe arbitrage the market here. You know, I've got like eight uh, good looking friends from the modeling industry. Let's come together. And talk to a club owner and let's agree that we each get a hundred dollars for the night you know we'll show up and get our, our uh, champagne bottles and stay at the table and uh rather than the promoter getting paid a thousand a night right like we could do this ourselves and uh, they were all like no <laughs> like, no not not interested because they don't want to go out for work they're not going out for money they're going out for fun Is a very different thing if you go out for money and you know, that's a desperate thing
1: the prospect for a girls worker co-op is uh, <laughs> very far in the future. It sounds so.
2: Right.
1: Where is this world going? The research that you did for this book was a decade ago. Assumedly, this world has probably changed significantly since, given all the ways that the world has changed over the last decade. Um, but, but where is it going? Where are these kinds of uh rituals of conspicuous consumption headed? This is beyond the scope of your research for this book, but. Assumedly, you followed it somewhat over the years since you were involved in it. Um, Where where do you think this uh, what, what kind of changes have taken place and are going to take place in this kind of world?
2: Yeah, sure. So there was a resurgence in the uh, mass promotions for big clubs that were driven by ticket sales pre-COVID in places like Brooklyn. So we saw this. That's partly the rise of the electronic music scene globally. So that's an opportunity for more inclusive kinds of clubbing, you know, less driven by VIP and uh, and image promotions. And I after the publication of the book. I received emails from some people who were nightlife entrepreneurs and they wanted to have conversations about how they could open a more inclusive club and still be profitable. Right. So can you make a VIP club that uh, doesn't have this hierarchy and and exclusions that are, you know, very heteronormative and, and kind of, yeah, archaic in some ways. And yeah, we had interesting conversations. They didn't end up opening (laughs) those clubs and I, and I had some doubts about whether you can, whether a club predicated on, like VIP is predicated on hierarchy. If that can be inclusive, what would it actually look like? I think that there's been uh, an uptick in more private social clubs, so like members only clubs, like Soho, Soho House um, in New York. So uh,
1: Zero Bond, where our uh, illustrious mayor spends a lot of time. That's another private club.
2: Right, right, right. These are places that you know have have their own exclusions kind of built in so uh they can be treated like private private spaces. So, you know, I I'm not sure w- what's happening in club worlds uh yeah, at the moment. I mean, I've I have been out lately and it looked that so I went to one of these kinds of spaces and it yeah, it, it seemed very familiar to me. I was, was out a couple of weeks ago in New York and um I'm sure that the contents of consumption can always change, but I think the fact of hierarchy persists. So it doesn't really matter what the next thing will be, but I do think that with the shape and nature of economic inequality and wealth concentration today, we're not going to see any lessening of unequal access to whatever that thing is.
1: Ashley Mears, thank you so much.
2: Yeah, thank you.
0: was my guest host, Jacobin editor Micah Utrecht, interviewing Ashley Mears, a professor of sociology and women's gender and sexuality studies at Boston University. She's the author of Pricing Beauty, The Making of a Fashion Model, and Very Important People, Status and Beauty in the Global Party Circuit. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, After noting that, to The Capitalist, every luxury of the worker seems to be so reprehensible. And everything that goes beyond the most abstract need, be it in the realm of passive enjoyment or a manifestation of activity, seems to him a luxury. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Theorio Rio-Francos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives and newsletters at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter and also now Instagram at thedigradio. And please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. If it's on iTunes or another such site please leave us a glowing review. If it is on Spotify, please contact Spotify and ask them why it is impossible to find The Dig on Spotify. This is infuriating. Please help. And also, please do tell your friends about the pod. Please make propaganda for us. And please do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly or annual contribution to keep this operation going strong. Even a few bucks is huge.